there you have it. In case you didn't know it, as a church, uh, we are not a church that takes ourselves too seriously, even as we try to take Jesus and his gospel of grace very, very seriously. Again, my name is Aaron. Uh, good morning. So glad you've joined us today for Church Online. I want to start today by talking about the power of vision, the power of vision. We all know how powerful a compelling vision can be. A vision gives us a picture of the future, a, a glimpse of how things could be that compels us forward. Having a vision is so vital to human life and so intimately connected to hope that the writers, the wisdom writers of the Old Testament actually had a proverb, a saying that went like this. They said that without vision, the people perish. To be human is to need vision. I was thinking about this power of vision in my own life. Those of you who know me uh, know that exercise has never been my favorite thing in life. In fact, my high school sport was actually marching band. But I remember <laughs> this last year when a friend of mine invited me to come join him at his gym. And, and what was so transformative about this experience was that it gave me a vision of who I could become. Sure, there were, there were people there who were just like me, just beginning the journey, but there were also others there who looked like they competed with the U.S. gymnastics team. They didn't just have six-pack abs, they had 14 packs, and it gave me hope that maybe, just maybe one day, I could have at least one ab. You see, I left that day with a vision, a picture of what a healthier, stronger life could look like for me. And that was one year ago, and that vision has kept me going these last 12 months. But this isn't just true of our physical life, is it? This is true of our spiritual lives as well. And that's what this series, Back to Life, is all about. We're talking about God's vision for our lives and for our church. You see, we as a church understand God's vision for us to be that we are to become a community that loves people as they discover and live out their role in God's story. Or, or to put it more inclusively so that we can see ourselves in this vision, we are to love one another as we discover and live out our role in God's story. And, and as a staff this last year and as elders, we've been talking about what, what would be a simple way, a simple tool that could help us remember or encapsulate this vision in a way that we could take it with us? Monday, Tuesday, throughout our weeks, it might guide us and compel us forward. And really, we've boiled it down to just kind of three simple words. And I want to give this to you today. You see, that vision boils down into the three words, up, in, and out. This is the picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be one who becomes a disciple and follower of him. Up is the word that we use for the with God life. We want to discover how to live in a transformative, life-giving, life-changing kind of relationship with God through Jesus. In, we want to do life with others. In Christian community, where we carry one another's burdens, we encourage and equip one another, we spur one another on. And out is that we are called to live a life with purpose, using the gifts and abilities and resources that God has given us to be a part of doing good in his world, of bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That 
is the picture of the Christian life. That's the vision we're called to. In fact, if you ever wondered, what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like? What's a vision of the life of a Christian? I would say this encapsulates it right here. The up, in, and out. Doing life with God, doing life with others, and doing life with a purpose. Well, we've been in this series with Nehemiah, and Nehemiah it has a vision as well. And this week, well, last week we met Nehemiah. This week we're going to see Nehemiah take that vision and begin to put it into action. He's going to take courage to change the things he can. Now, for those who weren't with us last week, uh, and this is your first introduction to Nehemiah, let me just catch you up quickly. Nehemiah is part of God's people in the Old Testament, that's before Jesus, and they were living in exile in Babylon. Remember, the Babylonians were the giant empire. They showed up and conquered God's people, and they sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and all the walls, all, they all but wiping out the way of life and worship for God's people in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah, he grows up in Babylon, and he finds himself working for the Babylonian king, a guy named King Artaxerxes, or King Artie, as I like to call him. One day, Nehemiah's brother comes back from Jerusalem with a report of just how bad things have gotten in the city, and Nehemiah is crushed. He's heartbroken. So, he courageously asks the king to let him go visit Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city to bring life back to Jerusalem. And, get this, much to our surprise, much unexpected, King Artie says yes. And that's where our scriptures pick up today. Let me read this to you. This is from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is Nehemiah writing. He says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Now, right from the beginning of chapter 2, there are some important things going on here. And the first one comes straight from Nehemiah's mouth himself. He says this, I had not yet told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now you might ask, why, why is Jerusalem so important? What's the big deal about Jerusalem and this temple? Well, to answer that question, we need to step back and look at the whole story of the Bible from kind of a 50,000-foot level. Remember, at the very beginning, God's purpose was to form a people, a people that he could dwell with, he could be with, he could have a relationship with. So God starts out with a single person, a guy named Abraham. And then he moves on from Abraham to, to a family, Jacob's family, the 12 sons. You might know some of those stories. And then eventually to a people that Moses will lead out of Egypt. And, and the way that God is with them as they are journeying through the wilderness to the promised land is that he is with them through his tabernacle, his tent of meeting. And this, this is why Jerusalem matters so much. 
You see, eventually those people will head into the promised land. They will become a nation. And when they do so, it's Jerusalem and the temple that become the place that God dwells, the place that God lives, the place that God communes and connects with his people. Now, this this can sound a little strange to us today, but the Israelites, they, they were not a dumb people. They knew God could work anywhere he wanted to, but, but in the ancient Jewish mindset, there was something special about Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem became the symbol of the with God life. It was there, it was in the temple where heaven and earth seemed to meet. Heaven and earth seemed to touch And for the ancient Jew, like Nehemiah, the closer you were to the temple, the closer you were to God. So you can see why this would would be so terrible then to be living in exile far from Jerusalem. And for Jerusalem to be in ruins, in shambles as it was. Without Jerusalem, God had no home on earth. He had no place to dwell. And so without Jerusalem... God's people could not do the with God life. They could not do the up, upward life. Now, of course, we now know uh, a little bit better with Jesus. When Jesus came, he would come and say, look, something greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. And then he made this striking promise in John. He said, look, if you will obey my commands, my Father and I will come and dwell. We'll make our home with you in your hearts. And we're actually going to talk about that in a few weeks. But for today... For today, I want to look a little bit closer at Nehemiah here, because what Nehemiah does next is quite remarkable. See, Nehemiah goes out in the middle of the night on horseback. It's almost like a John Wayne cowboy movie. He heads out, and he goes, and he examines the ruins, the walls, the gates, the pools, and he puts a plan in place to begin rebuilding the city, reactivating the life of the temple, getting back to a life of worship, a with God life. Now, fast forward, chapters three through seven are all about the rebuilding process, and there's a lot we're gonna visit there in coming weeks. But when we get to chapter eight, they are finally ready to reopen the temple and to re-engage this life of worship. And what's so interesting about this chapter is that we discover that there are actually four practices that they re-engage in order to do this with God life. And with the time we have left, I want to just look at these four things and do a little self-reflection, a little examination like Nehemiah to see if we want to re-engage God this fall. So you don't have to do the with God life. God will not force it upon you. But if you want to experience a deeper connection, more of God in your life, then what I want to suggest is that these four essentials might just be the four things you need to consider this fall. All right, so chapter 8 of Nehemiah, the first practice that they engage in right at the very beginning is they engage or re-engage God's word. The first thing they do is they put God's word at the center of everything. Uh, You know, it's kind of actually a mind-blowing scene when we get to chapter 8. Right here, they're, they're getting ready to reopen the temple, and they've invited everybody, I mean everybody, to come out. So they're all standing in the square. Somebody's brought in Chick-fil-A nuggets for everybody. I mean, it is a huge festival. And then Ezra, the Bible teacher, stands up, comes out, and everybody stands with him as he, get this, reads the entire 
law of Moses from beginning to end. Such a fascinating scene. You know what I thought we might do? I thought we might do that right now over the next four hours. So would you stand up at home and I'm going to read the... No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that to us right now. But look, at, look with me at Nehemiah. Look at this scene where God's word takes such precedence. This is from chapter 8, verse 2 on. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon. And y'all thought church got long at Easter. Uh, daybreak until noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a bunch of people whose names I can't pronounce. And on his left were a bunch of people whose names you can't pronounce. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above him, above them, excuse me. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. There should be a third one there, Amen. <laughs> then they bowed down and worshiped their Lord with their face to the ground. What a crazy scene, y'all. Now, part of what I love about this is that it highlights something very, very important in the with God life, something very, very important in the life of faith, and that is this, that the Word, the Scriptures, God word, God's Word must play a central role in the life of faith. You see, the reason we preach every week from the Bible and not just the farmer's almanac is because we as a church believe that the Scriptures have a unique authority to reveal to us the character of God. There is nothing else, no other source that can reveal to us the heart and character of God. And actually, I think that's probably why at the end of this little section, the people bowed down and worshiped. When they heard again the story from God's word of Abraham and Jacob and Moses and God's faithfulness to them, when they heard again the truths about God, that he is slow to anger, abounding in mercy and love, the only appropriate response to that truth was worship. What a great God. What a great God. Surely there is no other God like our God. You see, I believe the same, the same kind of experience, the same kind of response can be true for us today. One of the reasons the scriptures are such a vital part of the with God life is because they help us better know and better understand who this God is that we worship and serve. So let's be like Nehemiah for a moment, doing his examining of Jerusalem, and let's examine our own lives. Let me ask you this question. What role do the scriptures play in your life with God? I was talking with a dad this week, and he shared with me an uh, interesting thing that he and his family had been doing during this pandemic. Uh, he, he realized that, that he wanted to find a way to make the scriptures be a more active part of his family's life. And so something they've been doing for a number of weeks now is every night before dinner, they actually have a 15-minute devotion together as a family. 
And he said one of the best parts about it is he comes in and sometimes there are questions that he has that he doesn't have answers to. But they as a family read the text together and just allow it to shape and form something in them as a family. What role do the scriptures play in your life? What role would you like the scriptures to play in this season that we're in? See, the first thing they do to re-engage is they place God's word at the center and forefront of everything. But the second thing they do is this. The second thing they do is they commit themselves to regular rhythms of worship. Look with me at verse 18. Look how Nehemiah writes this. He says, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra, remember that's the Bible teacher, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the reg- regulation, there was an assembly. As soon as Nehemiah opens the temple, he sets out to reestablish a rhythm that had been part of the worship life of God's people for centuries. He sets out to reestablish the practice of Sabbath, of resting from work and having a day for worship. And what's really interesting, if you read the rest of the book, we see as the story plays out, this is going to be a hugely contentious issue. There are actually going to be some Jews in the city who they don't want to stop working. They don't want to prioritize Sabbath or worship. They just want to keep busting it 24-7. But we quickly discover that what they are missing out on is a rhythm of rest and connection that is vital to the with God life. I was talking to another family this week, and we are just talking about how much the pandemic has changed our rhythms, and they shared this fascinating thing with me. They said that in a way, this pandemic has offered them a unique kind of gift. They said their weekends used to be filled with activity and travel ball and work, but with things slowing down, they had discovered a new kind of rhythm. On Sundays, they get up and go for a walk together as a family. They make breakfast, and then they do church online, and then they spend Sunday afternoons hanging out with their extended family, and they said it has given them such life, even in this difficult time. I was thinking about my family on Sunday mornings, and in my house, we're just happy if everybody wakes up on time for church, and there's coffee actually brewed. Like, that's like A-plus for the Gibson household. But you know, I was actually talking with my daughter about this this idea of a regular rhythm of worship. And she shared something super insightful with me. She said, Dad, one of the things that I love about the rhythm of worship in our family is that every Sunday serves as a kind of weekly reset. It recalibrates my heart. It reconnects me to God. I was thinking I probably just should have had Zoe come and preach this sermon. It would have been awesome. (laughs) What might it look like for you to have more regular rhythms of worship in your life? Is there a daily rhythm or weekly rhythm that you feel drawn to experiment with or even try this fall? First thing they do to engage the with God life is putting God's word first. Secondly, it's by engaging regular rhythms of worship. And the third is this. They engage in feasting and celebration. 
Now, for a lot of us, especially those of us who grew up in church where you had to wear like the button shirt all the way up and the tie and the slacks and, you know, so if this idea that, that the God life, the with God life might involve feasting and celebration might sound like a little bit of an odd thing. You know, there are a lot of folks who think that the with God life is dull. It's a, it's a somber kind of thing. And apparently there were some in Nehemiah's day who thought this way too. In fact, in chapter 9, it gets, uh, excuse me, in chapter 8, it gets so bad, they are just sitting there weeping. They're, they're feeling horrible about all of this. And Nehemiah looks at them and says, hey guys, knock it off. The with God life is not a life of drudgery, it's a life of joy, and one that involves feasting and celebration. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. It says this, Nehemiah said to those guys, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, which in the Hebrew is tacos and margaritas. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, one of the easiest, one of the simplest ways that you and I can begin to experience more of God in our lives is to begin learning to recognize where God is at work in the everyday moments of our lives. When you pull into that Krispy Kreme drive-thru and they turn on the hot, fresh, now light right before it's your turn to order, do you recognize and celebrate the goodness of God in that moment? Or when you step out for that first tea on the golf course and the beauty of hole number one right as the fog is lifting and your drive lands right in the center of the fairway, do you pause and, and breathe in the goodness of God in that moment? Or how about when you come home from work or the store and you find that the kids have already emptied the dishwasher, vacuumed the floor, and cooked dinner? Well, who are we kidding? That doesn't ever happen. But you get the idea. Every moment, every good thing in our lives is an, is an opportunity to stop and recognize and celebrate the goodness of God in our lives. How are you recognizing and celebrating the goodness of God in your life. Which brings us to our fourth and final way that they engage the with God life. And that is simply through prayer and confession. Look with me at chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Nehemiah writes this. He says, They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And as we see in the rest of chapter 9, it is one long prayer to their God. You see, prayer... Prayer, in silence and with words, is the single most basic way that we connect with God. I said it last week, there really is no life of faith without a life of prayer. But you know, for a lot of people, a lot of people, and maybe this is true for you, 
Prayer can feel like some kind of strange thing that I just don't know how to do. Or, or it's intimidating because I'm afraid I'm going to do it wrong. Or when I tried to do it in the past, it just hasn't seemed to work. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to join me this week on our Tell Us More podcast. Because we're actually going to take the, the bulk of that podcast to unpack some different prayer practices that I've used in my life that have been particularly helpful to me learning how to do the with God life, how to connect with God in prayer. But for today, for today, I want to end with a simple opportunity for you to connect with God in prayer and confession right now. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and, and we'll pray both at home and here in the room. And I, I want to invite you to, to pray in one of three ways. Maybe you've never considered what it means to do the with God life. And as we've been talking about that today, you, you felt just a little bit of a longing. You said, gosh, I really would like to experience more of God in my life this fall then maybe, maybe you just want to make your prayer, God, would you teach me how to do this with God life? Would you show me how to connect with you? Or maybe you've just kind of found yourself tired of doing life on your own or feeling like you don't have any gas in the spiritual gas tank. And maybe for you, you just want to pick one of these four practices. There's nothing magical about these. These are not some kind of list of things we do to get God to love us more. He already loves you as much as he will ever love you, more than you could possibly imagine. These are simply practices that help us connect with him and learn to do life with him. So maybe your prayers specifically focus on one of these practices. God, would you help me to find a regular pattern of worship? Or God, would you help me find a way of engaging your scriptures? Or perhaps last and finally, you've sensed something of the Holy Spirit's invitation. Uh, maybe you've been doing the with God life, and right now is a sense of invitation from God saying, I want you to go deeper. I want to take you deeper. I want to draw you closer to my heart. Simply take a moment to talk with God about that. How might he be inviting you to engage with him in the with God life this fall? Can we pray? I want you to go ahead and take this moment to talk with God. That's all prayer is. I'm going to give you the next 20 or 30 seconds just to tell God what you heard today. Where do you need his help? What step would you like to take with him? Jesus, we confess the ways that we turn away from you, trying to do life on our own and on our own power. Today, would you teach us again what it means to do the with God life? Would you help us know how to rebuild and restructure in our lives so that we can connect with you in new and deeper ways? Jesus, come and make that true in our lives in the lives of our family, and in the life of our church. I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.